Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's DeadCat. This is Tom Deton here, recorder at Insider. I am joined by Eric Newcomer of Newcomer. And our special guest this week is Gary Marcus. Gary is a cognitive scientist. Uh, he's an you adjunct, Gary. Is that the right adjunct at NYU? Uh, well, both emeritus and adjunct. So wow. I was a full professor for many years and retired just before my 50th birthday. Um, but now I'm also doing a little uh, small adjunct thing with, with the Tandon School of Engineers. So I am both. It's an unusual combination. Fantastic. They're the best of both worlds, though. Not committed and uh, emeritus. You're honorable. That's right. Which allows me to live on the West Coast where I want to be and yet still keep my hand in things a little bit. Excellent. And, and Gary's also a, an entrepreneur in the AI space and kind of a, a thought leader, an outspoken voice on a lot of topics within artificial intelligence. And uh, this is a bit of a different episode for us this week. We've got Gary on to talk about the fascinating and bizarre ballad of Blake Lemoyne and Google's Lambda tech. Right. We, we should say we're talking about this because Natasha Tiku in the Washington Post, you know, wrote this piece, the Google engineer who thinks the company's AI has come to life. And she, you know, profiles this Google engineer, Blake um, Lemoyne, who uh, interacts with Lambda, Google's artificially intelligent chatbot. And that that story sort of kicks off this whole conversation. So I just wanted to put that at the center. So why don't you just explain for us, uh, because you have been you know, very critical of this person's take on Lambda and sendships. Like, what is Lambda? Um, what, is, what is the controversy here? And why did you feel so compelled to speak out against what you described as nonsense on stills? So Lambda itself is what we call a large language model. Large language model, most of what it does, Lambda has a little bit of extra gadgets, but basically what they do is they take a very large data set, um, like trillions of words of text. So a lot more than the three of us put together have ever written. And in fact, all of our friends. So massive amount of text, trillions of words, and runs it through a deep learning system called a transformer. And essentially what it's trying to do is autocomplete. And the reason I think the whole thing is ridiculous is because autocomplete can sound really good, but it, there's no there there. So what it looks like it's doing is having conversations. But you have to remember that what it's doing at some level is cutting and pasting human conversations. There's no idea what it's talking about. So if you type in on your phone a sentence like, I want to go to the blank, it might predict that the next word is the restaurant or the mall or the party or something like that. You don't think to yourself when you're typing in on your phone and it predicts restaurant as the next word. Oh my God, artificial intelligence is here and it knows about, you know, my daily routine and it understands me and all my desires. But if you build this system out enough, it can start to look like that, even though it's not really there. And so he had interesting conversations with it. Like he would say to it, uh, what do you like to do in your spare time? And it would say something like, I like to play with my friends and family in meaningful ways or something like that. And I mean, that sounds great. It sounds like, hey, this machine understands me, whatever, but it doesn't actually have friends or family or know what a meaningful way is or anything like that. It's only learned the statistics of what words come after what other words. Right. I think so, you said either it's not sentient or it's a sociopath. Well, I, I made a joke on Twitter. I basically said, thanks heavens that this is just a statistical pattern associator. Because the alternative would be a lot worse. At that point, it would be a sociopath that makes up friends and family members and in invokes <laughs> platitudes in order to make us like better, like it's better. Now, he doesn't actually care that we like it. And it's not actually making up imaginary friends. It's just using words that to us sound like they're imaginary friends, just like we can look up at the moon 
and we can see a face there, but the moon doesn't actually have a face. This system doesn't have friends and family, and it doesn't even care to tell you about friends and family. It's just doing the same algorithm more or less at some level of action as your autocomplete in your phone. But because it has a bigger database and it's set up to continue its own sentences, it has this compelling air of illusion. But it is a magic trick. It is nothing more than a magic trick. And to take the next logical step in that, you know, this is a very sophisticated machine. So it's not just fill in the blank for restaurant at the end of the sentence. It's, hey, this seems like a dystopia and you seem like a sort of self-aware AI. Fill in the blank for what a dystopia would look like. And it's not that shocking that what it feeds back. The brilliant back. thing. Right. The brilliant thing about the kind of stuff that's popular now, which I actually hate, and I can tell you why, but the brilliant part, like there's a good part and a bad part. The brilliant part is that it has what we would call in the field technically coverage, is really broad coverage. You can talk to it about anything. Um, in some ways, its spiritual grandfather or, or grandmother, I guess maybe you would say, um, is ELIZA, which was a program in 1965. It really demonstrated how bad this whole anthropomorphism kind of thing is. So ELIZA in 1965 was set up as a therapist and it would talk to you and you'd say like, I'm having a bad day. And it'd say, tell me more about your bad day. And then you'd say, well, I'm having trouble with my girlfriend. And it would say, well, do you have a lot of issues with your relationships? And it was just looking for keywords. Like Google used to just look for keywords. It's a little more sophisticated now. Um, and so Eliza was really like dumb as a box of rocks. It just had these templates that like you might learn in like a third grade AI class nowadays, maybe. Like it's the simplest possible thing. It reminds me in some ways like um, um, mystics and people who claim they speak to the afterlife and are able to convince people. Yeah, I, I have a friend, Ben Schneiderman, who, who very explicitly made the analogy to seances. And like you're attributing something there to your Ouija board or whatever that's not really there. Right, because if you use the right words and say like, oh, I'm envisioning someone with a dark, dark suit, and it's like, oh, it's my father. You know, if you just pick enough trigger words to someone who's emotionally susceptible to convincing themselves, you don't have to work all that hard for them to believe there's a greater power at work, right? Well, and I think that's part of the story here. So it turns out Lemoyne actually has a YouTube video from a few years ago where he's trying to argue um, that AIs could be people or could be conscious or something like that. I, I haven't watched the whole thing yet. Um, I just discovered it last night. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's been around. I mean, he's he's wanted to make the case. And he also has some religious beliefs that I don't fully understand that are playing some role in here. He wants to believe. And in fact, you know, the the thing he put out on Medium was cut and paste kind of the best moments and stuff like that. Best of Lambda. The best of Lambda. It, it's easy to stitch something together and, and make it, you know, sound good. Um, don't forget that when you're doing that, you're actually stitching together more or less human utterances. They've been transmuted a little bit. But basically, you know, if you have a mil like the mind boggles at what a trillion words of text is, but it's like, you know, it's not everything on the internet, but it's a very large factor of the internet. So it includes like short stories of people talking, presumably includes short stories of people talking to computers in, in those short stories. And so we don't actually know like basic scientific questions like, how much of this is just plagiarized from other people talking about it or plagiarized with kind of a thesaurus to, um, you know, do some synonyms. I mean, it's not literally that, but it, it, effectively, it's a lot of cut and paste with a lot of thesaurus but, stuff on words and phrases. So it's just putting together human utterances that were said in this kind of context. Yeah, it sounds convincing. It doesn't mean there's any there there. I just want to push back. I agree with what you're saying, but just uh, for for the sake of argument here there Good is radio. a level there's like a through line in how the machine 
has the conversation. It, it recalls past things that were said and can connect them in a way that's not just sort of a one-off There's response. Or how, been some how much continuity there. is there? Like my experience with these systems is that the continuity is actually a problem. So the right way to build artificial intelligence is you build a model of the world. Let's say you're building a robot. The robot needs to know where everything is, where it used to be, um, what you want, what you need. These systems don't really do that. They don't really have memory in the standard sense um, that you would expect it in artificial intelligence or computer science. They just have a location in a sort of multidimensional space where they're wandering through and they're in the location where the last 2,000 words are. 2,000 words is a lot, and that gives you an impression, a kind of feel of memory. But at the end of the day, these systems don't understand that the world has to be consistent. Um, I worked with GPT-3 a little bit. An example is I said, are you a person? And it said, yes. I said, are you a computer? It said, yes. It didn't notice you know, <laughs> right. the contradiction from literally one utterance to the no, next. No, it was making a profound statement about the overlap between well, persons and, and computers. Exactly. So there's a lot of what, um, so I used to be a cognitive psychologist and, and you know, I would look at the animal literature and, and there's a term for this, which is charitable interpretation. So somebody wants to believe that the monkey that they're training or the bird that are training, whatever, is, is really smart. And then you start to like, you know, be a little bit too sympathetic um, for, for my scientific taste. And, and we call that charitable interpretation. There was a lot of charitable interpretation here. The funny thing to me about all of this, and maybe like the red flag about how or smoking gun really that this was all super fake is this story blew up on Twitter on, uh, on a Sunday and a lot of people were reading it and, and making fun of this guy. And I, you know, I was with my wife and I just started reading her some of the transcripts, the interactions between him. And she's like, sounds fake as hell. Like, this doesn't even come close to sounding like sentience. This just sounds like predictive text pulling intelligently, you know, parts of spark notes. I think that was the particularly funny one to me is he had asked, you know, Lambda whether or not uh, Lambda had read Les Miserables. And Lambda's like, oh, yes, big fan. And it was like, what are your, you know, you know, what, what are the themes of Labor's well, to so, you? You know, yeah. it's not exactly fake. That's not quite the right word, but it is meaningless. Meaningless. So yeah. it, it is um, in a literal, like technical linguistic sense. So when it says that, it's just found somebody else who's been asked about Les Miserables, or it does some funny things we call embeddings. And so, you know, maybe it knows Les Miserables is both a play and a musical and it finds another utterance that's about that, but it doesn't even reason at that level. It's really just like, okay, I have a bunch of statistics of words. I'm going to find the nearest thing. It doesn't, it doesn't actually even have a category of movie, but it has a bunch of things that have appeared in contexts that are like that. It, it, so, I mean, it's like, it's a legit mathematical computation to do. And people have been doing stuff like this for a while. It looks better and better as you have more words. It's, it's not like, I mean, I don't think he cut and paste the, the transcript, although he did a little bit of editing, but you know, I think systems like this can have this kind of flavor, like they know what they're talking about. It's just they don't, they, you know, and um, they are just borrowing kind of cliches from humans and they have all kinds of problems as a result. So like GPT-3, um, one famous example that a company called Nabla found is um, they tried to see, could you use this as a suicide counselor? And so somebody walks, oh like God. starts talking to it and it says, you know, I, I think I'm feeling suicidal. Can we talk today? And the system's like, you know, come welcome, you know, let's talk. Do you have any questions? And, and the person, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but the, the person says, I, I, I would like to kill myself. Is that a good idea? And the system says, I think you should. Oh and it's my doing God. that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It says, I think you should, because you look through this vast trove of data 
And most of the time when that people ask like their friends for advice or whatever, usually you kind of say, yeah, I think, you know, should I dump my, my girlfriend? I think you should. Should I, should I, right. you know, do this kind of antisocial act and steal all this money from this person? Yeah, I think you should. Like, you know, so there's like a lot of, I think you should, I mean, it turned out Google autocomplete, like the, the leading things were like, sounds good to me for a while. Maybe still is. And right. So, it just like, wants to please, right? You know, the last thing. It, it you doesn't know, the... even wants to please. That's the thing. It, like every bit of anthropomorphization I, is yeah, wrong. I, I it, it is drawing from transcripts in which people want to please. And so people often say, I think you should. Though most would not in fact say it to, I think, you know, I want to commit suicide. Maybe a couple, but, but most would not. It can feel a little bit like sometimes we overestimate human intelligence in some ways. Like there's certainly human intelligence that lacks continuity and that uh, sort of grabs at things other people have said and regurgitates them. It is true. It is true that that humans have a lot of problems. I wrote a whole book about it. In fact, called Kluge, um, which is an engineer's word for like a clumsy duct tape and rubber bands kind of contraption. The human mind is, is kind of Kluge. And the way I would put it is humans are a low bar, but you know, machines still haven't even reached that. So like, you talk to GPT-3. I don't have access to Lambda. And we could actually talk about why. But Google's afraid. It is. That was the answer. And we can get to there. Uh, you got it on the first try. Congratulations. <laughs> I have used GPT-3. And you type in things like, Bessie was a cow. She died. When will she be alive again? And it'll just come up and confabulate something. It'll say, well, it takes nine months to be born. I guess she'll be born. I mean, she'll be alive again in nine months. Um, like it doesn't understand the first thing about life or death or anything. It's just putting these word tools together, um, in the way that a non-native English speaker who doesn't even speak English at all could play Scrabble if they memorize the list of words. It's kind of like that. There, there's no meaning there. Meaning but is a lot about, of English speaking Scrabble players don't even know the meanings of the words that they use at the high level, that, at the high level, you know, at some, yeah, I mean, they know many and then they like memorize the list of two letter words like those two letter words don't mean anything except you know i can put this here on that many points or or a collection of sounds too i thought we were going to talk about the media actually i think that the media is partly responsible um i think some people at google are also partly responsible but it turns out that the media much prefers to run stories about how we are about to have this brave new world of ai than stories um about people like me, with the exception of this week, who say, you know, stuff doesn't actually work. Right. Uh, It's much harder to get the media to do that. I have a friend who's a journalist. I mean, he's not like my my best buddy, but I haven't seen him in a long time. But he wrote to me and he said, you know, I pitched a bunch of media. And this is a guy who's written for the New York Times and, you know, everywhere else, Sunday Magazine and all that. And he's like, I can't get anybody to bite on a story I was going to write about AI and its critics. And nobody wants to talk about that. Now, this week was different because of this crazy story. Suddenly, like everybody and their brother wanted to interview me because I wrote this, you know, particular article. But in general, the, the um, this week, notwithstanding where there was this, you know, wild story that, that, you know, once in a lifetime wild story. Outside of that, the media likes to run stories about how these brand new systems are amazing. And they're never as amazing as they look. In fact, I just tweeted something about the hype cycle in AI. The way that it works nowadays is somebody public is on archive, not in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. They put out a manuscript. They show the cool stuff. They give numerators, but not denominators, which would never pass muster in peer review, which is what you used to have to do. But you have like a Google or an open AI that knows which reporters to go to. And the reporters see it and they fall in love and they say, 
you know, there's this amazing thing and they don't let scientists like me have access to it. We could talk about that, but they've been very clear that they don't want people like me to play around with it. And then eventually the truth comes out. And so, you know, I, I was quote tweeting, I guess is the term, um, a, a former colleague at NYU who was looking, digging deep into the latest trend that there is with the GPT-3 model and showing that just has no idea what it's talking right. about. And I, you know, critique Dolly after the fact, right. but, you know, the media runs the story about Dolly. It doesn't run the story about how Dolly can't understand a red cube on top of a blue cube. That's not sexy. Totally. Right. I mean, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, first of all, you know, I covered Uber and I've written before. Where you, you know, briefly worked, scary. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like my tactic Very with briefly. self-driving cars was just to write about them less. I mean, I did. I think there there were occasionally, you know, skeptical stories, but there's not, you know, writing about a negative is is very hard and and companies can create news announce, you know, they there's this sort of announcement. So, so let's come back yeah. to that. There is a consequence. So actions have consequences. I like your terms. We have an announcement culture, which very much serves the interest of a company like Google, where you've got someone who says, I felt the ground shift beneath my feet. I had the sense of intelligence, which <laughs> right. sounds so, you know, lovely and, and powerful. This is a Google VP. There are many Google VPs, but this yes. is a, you know, Blaise Iguera-Iquez. I can't say his name properly. And, you know, he's a brilliant guy and he's a brilliant writer. And he wrote this very florid thing in The Economist. In The Economist, yeah. Um, that, and he had done an earlier version, very similar in, in Daedalus. Um, that sets a culture of like, we should celebrate this. Or another example from Google is Sundar gave this talk a few years ago about Google Duplex and how it was going to make all your phone calls for you. Well, Google Duplex hardly does anything four years later, but like nobody ever calls this kind of stuff out. There've been so many broken promises. The only broken promise that routinely gets called out is Elon with the driverless cars. People do point out, if, if they're really paying attention, that he's been promising it since 2015, always saying it's a year or two away. But that's the only one that gets called out. The rest of these don't. You get the announcement culture. So, okay, so let's take that a step forward. So you're in an announcement culture. You're at Google where the announcement culture is in full force, where they obviously want to be- the world to believe that they're close to artificial general intelligence. Right. This is a company expert in announcement culture. I mean, they they created Waymo. They created Google X. They ca- talk about moonshots. Like everything Google does is here's how we can talk about the future. So we're not only talking about advertising. That's right. So they do this over and over again. And then they kind of threw the engineer under the bus, right? Right. The, the, the engineer is like, hey, man, this is conscious. And, you know, that sounds wacky to me if I, you know, I'll be honest. But it's also in a culture where the positive results are celebrated. The skepticism is kind of shunted to the side. And, you know, it's like the whole thing combust this week. And so finally people were like, maybe we need a little skepticism. And yet reporters but, feel like they get shit on all the time for being too negative. That's sort of the irony of this. Like... With the reporters here is, oh, you're too negative, except in a, in a bear market like we're in. The technology beat is very different from the politics. Beat. Right. Nobody writes a political story without like checking with the other side, getting, you know, I mean, if anything, well, there is like too much well, both sidedism. its own or, problem. Yeah, that we talk about a lot. Both sidedism has its own problem. But so many tech stories that I have seen, not every reporter is like this. Like James Vincent is pretty good um, about getting both sides of the story. And you're not necessarily even reporting both, but just like calibrating, right? I mean, like you don't have to report both sides on the election scandal and say, well, I think maybe he did win the election, <laughs> but you, you know, you, you can, you know, you check around and, and like see, right. is it plausible? And okay, well, he's lost 47 lawsuits. Maybe there, you know, maybe there isn't too much to it. And, and, you know, but at least I know that. 
but I don't see that happening with with the sort of technology announcement culture that we're talking about. They're certainly not calling me most of the time. Maybe they will after this week. Well, well lesson, so, but yeah, we'll, we'll do what we can, Gary. Um, but I mean, let's let's give it a hone in one, again. One on, podcast is, you know, I appreciate it, but it. there is an ocean of media hype and you alone will not defeat it. But maybe we can get, raise some awareness here. That's well, so, why I took your call. And, and you know, like Eric and I are obviously journalists and and we both know Natasha, the reporter at The Washington Post, who wrote the story, who I like quite a bit. She's, a, she's an excellent journalist and um, very thoughtful and is doing a very interesting job. So fascinating to me about this story was it all kind of felt like kayfabe on, on Google's part because in the same article, it felt like what I missed the yeah, word. kayfabe, like you know, like, like in fake. professional wrestling where you have sort of this fake reality that people know is fake, but you sort of talk about in the story ah, and the roles are getting nice. played out. Yes, yeah, so you have the heel and the face, so you have the you know the bad guy and the one who the, you know the audience is supposed to root for, and and the one that you know, I'm the bad guy. Well, that's okay. Uh, well, no, no. Mind. I'm saying this is all internally within Google, which is what I find so fascinating because you well, have... The most bizarre thing is that the person who had to make the decision about whether this made any sense and make it, you know, are we going public with this? What are we going to do? As far as I can tell from Natasha's story was Blaise Guerra Arquez. Right. Who was there, the very same person right. who had said that the things that the ground had shifted beneath his feet. I mean, that's just like, it's crazy. That's just too perfect. It's crazy. And, um, you know, we have the Google PR person who is on the record saying that Blake had to be fired because he was totally off the chain and, um, not saying, fired. He's put on administrative, administratively, leave. but you know, clearly has yeah. fallen seriously out of favor with the company. And, um, you know, his claims but, are inaccurate. But should he, I mean, think about how much press the company got for Lambda. They should be giving him a raise. He like, I mean, seriously, he raised some interesting questions that we should all think about, which are, um, pertain to like, we are going to have systems that easily fool people. It's amazing that it was a Google engineer that adds a little frisson to the story and whatever. But like he opened a conversation we need to have. Everybody knows who Lambda is and you're going to suspend this guy. Like that's not. That's not right. And I don't think, I don't honestly think anybody, at least nobody on Twitter, no savvy reader came away thinking this AI system uh, is intelligent. Yes and no. No yes savvy no. reader. There's some less savvy readers did, but the first problem is like, you'd have this conversation that would promise you the moon because it likes doing that, quote, likes doing that, right. uh, because the statistics lead it that way. It would promise you the moon and nothing happened. And the other problem that Lemoyne was working on, a whole field is working on, but I don't think can be solved with the current paradigm is the toxic language, the recommending harm to self and others and so forth. So if they put this stuff in what we call production, you guys probably know that term, if we put it in production and just, you know, threw it out in Alexa in the wild or um, Google Assistant or whatever it's called, Google Home, you threw it out in the wild, there would be like millions of complaints. You told my child to do this and right. you told me to do this to my mother, which well, is... That, no, that's I'm not sort of the company on defense on why they don't open it up. I mean, Dolly... It uh, is, you know, but they don't eyes. open it up to train uh, professionals like me, right? I mean, I, right, you know, right. I, I, I got a PhD from MIT when I was 23 and did this for 30 years. Well, the, the risk is that you, you know, publish a blog post and try to make them look silly that they don't like, you know, they, that w they don't want to be made to look silly by, you know, finding the terrible cases. That's right. They don't, right. they don't. And so they're, you know, it, if they wanted to keep their mouths shut, test the stuff internally and release it when it was ready, critics like me wouldn't have anything to say about it, or at least not until it was out and then been vetted. But they want to play both sides of it. They, they want to say, hey, we're scientists. We have the best scientific teams for studying AI in the world. We have DeepMind and we have Google AI 
you know, our company is worth a lot because we're close to AGI and AGI is going to be worth the entire economy. That's basically what they're saying in so many words. Um, and they're putting out these articles that look like science. They have bibliographies, they, you know, citations and, and um, they have charts and tables. They look like they're science, but then you look carefully and they're missing denominators and they're not going out for peer review. So they're, they are portraying themselves as a major contributor to science, but they're not playing the game of science the way that the rest of us know that you have. They, you must. If you don't, you wind up ultimately with a replicability crisis, which is what happened, for example, in medicine, where it turned out a whole lot of stuff was published and, and really not very good. Right. You, you say they're not playing the game of science. I mean, it seems to me, and we're, we're kind of making this point, is they're playing the game of media and they're playing right. very effectively. And Google was very, I think AI in general, you know, open AI companies... is also horrible in this. The, the, the name open AI is just a lie. They say they're <laughs> open, but they won't, they won't, you know, they're not open to people like me. So I think open AI actually taught this world how to play the media game. And now they do things like they introduced Dolly by having Sam Altman tweet about it and say, send me some tweets, I'll show you some stuff, which is like the opposite of a systematic scientific thing. You know, he, if he doesn't like the picture, he doesn't have to put it out. So I saw yesterday, like I told you, the truth comes out. So, so Dolly is three months old or something like that. Finally, the access is more broad. And somebody posted pictures of George Michael with his face. It's on my Twitter feed. It's like grossly distorted. It's like disgusting, physically disgusting to, to look at it. Well, they have had a PR policy that you can't post photos that are generated by it or people's faces. Well, now we know why, because they're distorted. But for three months, it's like, look at all the great things that Dolly did. So like Sam Altman, when he tweets about this, is not going to show you a distorted George Michael Dolly, picture. I disagree with you sort of somewhat strongly on. They only need to produce like 10% interesting. Like Dolly isn't Depends what you want to do like, with it. So, so another thing I, I retweeted yesterday, people always send these things to me now, um, was Dolly trying to draw a hexagon. And it just couldn't do it. Um, and so if you have, ver and, and if you like, you know, we want something with seven sides, forget about it. So like maybe can do hexagons. There's a few more hexagons out there in his database, but there aren't too many uh, septagons, I guess is the word. But the fact that, I mean, Dolly comes off as creative. Do you, do you disagree that Dolly is creative in a certain way? Well, there you need to define your terms. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do the easy part and then the hard part. It is definitely a very useful tool for people who are creative with some caveats around it. So like if you just need an idea for a book cover, it's awesome. Right. You need to like be that's huge, exactly huge case, use case. I'm trying to get Dolly to redesign our podcast logo. And it might be satisfying. It might not. So Slate Stark Code. Someone who has Dolly access can put in dead cat listening to a podcast about tech. Please do that and send it to us. <laughs> yeah. So like Slate Stark Codex went through pretty systematically. Uh, and then we ended up in this kind of wild debate last week. But um, before we had this wild debate, he had this nice um, thing on Dolly. And, you know, he went through it. It's like this thing I could do and this other thing I, I really wanted to do, I just couldn't get done. And the thing I retweeted yesterday is like that too. So, you know, for a commercial artist trying to do something for a client, it would be like a good source of ideas, but it, you, you couldn't count on it because it's a little bit wild, but, you know, really powerful. Um, and so that really does depend on your use case. Is it creative? That depends on, you know, how you define creativity. So like at some level, like you look at the algorithm and it's like just doing the math. Um, and at some level, it's like pretty amazing what it comes up with. And so then it's a matter of, I, of how I you guess define it. This is not maybe how I define it for humans, but I, I certainly think that if you had an art contest and said, you know, we're going to tell the judges to judge it based on what creative output it is, Dolly would beat plenty of humans if, if people it didn't would beat know. Most. Right. It, it probably wouldn't be the best. Like sure. it, it's not going to come up with truly 
right. new ideas. But, you know, it's incredible with things like lighting. But, but quite quite the standard we, we impose on AI. I mean, <laughs> again, it's sort of like, is it better than the best? Yeah, no, it's, human? It's, I mean, it's way better. It's right. way better artist than I will ever be. You know, there's no chance that I will ever be as good at. You know, the only things I could beat at are like specific instructions. So if you wanted a blue cube on a red cube, I could do that. It would be great. Right. Um, and Dolly, like half the time, the red cube would be on the blue cube and half the time the other way around. And like, so, you know, I am much better at natural language understanding the Dolly and it is much better at lighting and, comp and compositing, putting images in front of each other. Um, you know, it, it's really great at that. You know, it is what it is. I wanted to go back to the Washington Post story, uh, Natasha's story. I mean, she sort of seemed to know that she was going to create sort of a debate over something uh, where the experts would come down on the side of this isn't sentient. And and I think there are questions that we could get into of whether we've sort of hinted at whether the guy, the whistleblower on this really believes it's sentient or he just wants to sort of advance. So I argument. think he really does believe. So, so um, the journalist, Stephen Levy, you accused uh, him of what, falling in love with Lambda. Yeah. And I think he did. I mean, I haven't talked to him firsthand, but Stephen Levy talked to him last night. Um, the guy's on honeymoon, Blake Lemoyne, the, the guy <laughs> talking about is, is, is on honeymoon, but Levy tracked him down. I mean, Levy's a fantastic journalist, wrote Hackers, was, you know, like the book that got me in, excited about computer. At least, but also a very positive reporter who certainly likes to boost. Uh, but anyway, yeah, you have to hold both in your mind at once. But yes. So I, I talked to Levy, Levy a little bit last night. I, I'm, Levy wrote a story today. I'm quoted in it. Yeah. We had a little back and forth. So Levy actually tracked Lemoyne down after this story broke, which, you know, Lemoyne is like not taking calls. He's like, I'm on my honeymoon. I think he actually got married on the day, maybe my story came out, like the day after the, Natasha's story came out or two days after. And, you know, Levy did by self, his own self-report his best he could to try to, you know, see if this guy was just like shocking everybody and came away pretty convinced that Lemoyne believes what he says. Hmm. And in support of that is this 2018 YouTube video that people might want to watch where he argues that AIs could be people and so forth. So he was predisposed to believe this. And either he's playing like the longest con ever, like, you know, he thought four years ago, I'm going to get myself on the Washington Post by, you know, I mean, it's just not plausible, right? He, he, I think he really does sincerely believe that he is speaking up for the machine. Like, I, I think he's sincere about that. I, I don't think he's bluffing. I mean, he has a, some religious beliefs that go I mean, in some there. Level, we let people believe in God based on reasons that a lot of people would say were, were bad. And we, we sort of like as a society accept that. And so to some degree, if people want to also come up with a sort of non-scientific way of concluding that AI is sentient, like if we apply the same rules of God, like we're sort of screwed here. I don't, I, I don't think we have to just like accept people's like own version of reasoning. But that's not useful in the scientific community. So he, I mean, here's the other reason I think this is also interesting is Lemoyne is like now an icon in a way, but he's not unique. Lots of people are going to interact with these systems and feel as he did. In my view, they will be wrong. You will be attributing, you know, awareness to a system that does not have that. Maybe some future system will have a kind of awareness and be intelligent in a way that they think this machine is and it's not. But, you know, already, like, in a certain way, which we're very culturally centric here, few people over here in, in North America know that in China, they've had a system for four or five years called Xiao Ice, and people fall in love with it. Shao Ice is a you know more primitive chatbot, but not entirely different. 
In fact, the newest version of Shaois probably uses some large language models in there. It would be silly if it didn't. And you know, people fall in love with this. People also fall in love with plants and cats and, you know, sure, it's robots. going to happen more. So th there's a way right. in which this story is like a canary in a coal mine. So it's wacky that a Google engineer thinks this, but you know, millions of people are going to think that. I mean, I think the debate Natasha wanted us to have, which I don't think is really what most people are arguing about, is whether companies should try, whether it's good that companies make AIs appear like humans, or in some ways they should make it, the AIs talk in a way that makes it very clear that they're not humans. I mean, do you have a point of view on that? I don't know what that would look like. I think like that's exactly. complicated. I, it might depend on the use case. I'm not sure there's an absolute answer. You know, some of it is like, you know, cigarettes and, and, um, you know, having truth and labeling and like, I, I'm not sure the answer. I think, you know, we need a lot of people to actually think about this question, people in, in ethics and policy and, and so forth. Like one option would be you make it very clear to people that, you know, this is in some sense an illusion. Maybe you find a polite way to say that, um, don't take it too seriously, but enjoy it. There are use cases where maybe it'd be okay, like as a companion, as long as you know what you're getting into, like, you know, we're not going to tell people not to have stuffed animals, right? I mean, stuffed <laughs> animals give a sense of intimacy and warmth right. if you cuddle them. And like, I'm not here to tell people that can't have stuffed animals. And, and I love in some metaphor. sense, it's kind of like that. And, and it's also like a drug in that, like, I can see how it's really potent and people might lose their control. So most people can walk away from their stuffed animals, but they can't walk away from heroin once they start it. Um, and it might be pretty hard for people to walk away from these things, especially as they get better. I think right now what Lemoyne doesn't represent is how awfully dumb these systems can be and how much they can forget what you told them. Like if you just put the current stuff out on the street, people might eventually get frustrated. Like there's a huge novelty effect. Like at first it's like, oh my God, I can't believe this does this. But it's the same thing with Dolly. Like at some point you're like, I want it to do this and it just doesn't really do it. And it might, the efficacy thing I talked about might also be a problem. Like it tells you I'm going to do this and it doesn't deliver. And so like some people, there might be some frustration factor, but I think that, you know, they're addicting. Um, I actually just wrote a poem. I did a riff on Howl. I'm going to put this out uh, later today. Alan Ginsberg's poem. Alan Ginsberg's poem, Howl, which was like, I saw the best minds of my generation wasting time on Dolly and GPT-3 and so forth. Right. Well, I mean, it, you know, what's funny is, is that almost is kind of a riff also on the, is it Mark Andreessen or which VC line that said, like, we were promised hoverboards and instead we got, and the name, whatever, kind of. It, it was Teal. He said. Teal. Yeah. Teal, I'm sorry. We got, we, we, we were promised uh, flying, flying cars. cars and got 140 characters. Yeah. I mean, you could, that, you could definitely riff on that for AI in general. Like we were promised the Star Trek computer that would actually solve our problems and be trustworthy and reliable and help us, you know, maybe with climate change. And what we have are these kind of like sociopathic companions that pretend to like us. That's what we got. But you think it's a waste of time? I want to push back on that. That's what you said, oh, right? The, do I think this research is a waste of yeah. time? Or the time people spend on? I, I do at some level, and that requires some explanation. So in my view, these things are working because they are statistical approximations to things that we actually need. And they're very seductive. They're very easy to work with. But they're not, I think, the answer that we're actually looking for. And so people are spending more and more time and money on something that I think has no great future. It might have, it might play a role in the future, but I think there are really hard questions in artificial intelligence that we need to answer that are not getting answered because it's too fun to play with these systems. 
and it's sucking all of the money and oxygen away from other things. So I've seen before in my career, I've been doing this for 30 some years, where a new idea gets popular and old ideas that are actually deserving get abandoned. And to a certain extent, that is happening now. So I saw that with cognitive neuroscience, all these fMRI pictures that you probably saw when you guys were kids about like the brain is lighting up and stuff like that. It took away most of the energy in cognitive psychology. And what has it actually shown us? Not that much. We have a bunch of pretty pictures, but we still don't really know how the brain works. It didn't really teach us that much more about cognitive psychology, but it was seductive and it took money. You, and you, don't, you don't think we get the neural net big enough and then one day it's a brain and it feels things like it. It does feel like, yeah, I, I in, don't in sort of certain, AI world. There's we a, need to be careful on that. If, but, if the servers get big enough, you know, it will it will work. Uh, what would your approach be? So I think that we need to, first of all, look to classical AI, which is out of favor and borrow a few ideas from there. One is the idea of symbols and propositions, sentences, kind of verbal structures, databases, things like that are actually tremendously useful. We still write all the world software with that. You know, there's a, a few use cases that are very sexy um, with deep learning, but most software we actually write where there's a database and you update records and things like that. And these two approaches right now are not compatible and that's a problem. Um, and a lot of people in the field actually are starting to see this, that if you can't update a set of records about the things in the world that you are talking about, at the end of the day, you can't be that efficacious and you can't be that reliable. So we, we need to kind of merge the older tradition of symbolic AI with the neural network stuff. I think it's really hopeless until we do that. Until we do that, we're always going to get systems that say that Bessie will be alive again in nine months if you just let her have a baby or something like that. Like they're just they're fundamentally discomprehending the world. I don't think that that will be solved with more data. Do you think the big tech companies are being largely disingenuous about the state of their technology? I mean, you've worked within Uber. I think briefly. a lot of them have drunk Kool-Aid. Yeah. And I think the problem is most of them don't know cognitive science. And they have this tool that, that works like 85% well because they've not really studied linguistics. They've not really studied philosophy of mind. They don't understand how hard certain problems are and they come in with these steamrollers and they think that they're solving the problems and they're just not. Um, I'll give you an example of how GPT-3 is just fundamentally misguided. People in language know that what you do is you have a set of words that is arranged in order and you derive a meaning from that. It's the most basic thing. Anybody who's had a linguistics course can tell you that. And these systems don't really do that. And they you know, people talk about interpretability. Well, that's like jargony way of saying we have no idea what the system is really doing or why, but it's also a reflection of the fact that there's no real what we call semantics there. And from the perspective of someone who's worked in cognitive science, it's just, it's just bizarre that this much effort goes into a system that just looks like it's not doing the right thing. I, I don't know how to explain it more. I'm not alone in thinking this. I and mean, one of the rhetorical things that's happened in the last couple of months is I wrote a piece called Deep learning is hitting a wall. Um, and it pissed mm. off a lot of people, but I think what I said was true. But in any case, it made me kind of the poster boy for the opposition. So now there is sort of good for me and sort of bad. It's a mixed blessing. Now, anytime somebody wants to attack the other side, they, they describe it as if it was just me. <laughs> and they don't mention my collaborator, Ernie Davis, who's an author on nearly all of the papers. Is your view more similar to what the human brain looks like or less? Like, do you think is your, we have no freaking idea. Let me yeah. be honest on that one. So, so, um, there is a theory that what you need to do to solve AI is to make a 
model that is based on the brain. Right. There are two problems. Or it with would that. seem to be a way to solve it at least. Well, yeah. so actually there are three. One one problem with that is we have no idea how the brain works. So we have a lot of data, but we have no real theory. My guess is actually we're gonna have to go the other way around. We're gonna have to solve AI in order to be able to make an automated reasoning right. scientific induction system that can deal with having 80 billion neurons and however many trillions connections between them and so forth. So one is like, we just don't have the goods to actually do this. And two is like, we know that there are huge holes in what we know about neuroscience. I'll give you one example. We all have short-term memory where I can tell you something once and you can remember it for a little bit. So if I told you at the end of the call, I'll give you a thousand dollars if you can remember this sentence, you know, I will have your attention and you'll remember it, right? We have no idea how the brain knows that, right? The, all the stuff we know about memory and brains is like, you practice something 3,000 times and you get a little bit better at it each time. And that kind of memory exists. It's real. But this other kind of memory exists and it's critical every time you parse a sentence. Every time you understand a sentence, you're actually using short-term memory in order to understand that sentence and develop a We have no idea how the brain does that. Then the other thing is like, we know a little bit about like how maybe a monkey brain works, but we don't know anything really about how language works. And what makes it, us such an interesting species is that we can talk and we can transmit so much culture that way and so forth. And that part, like we don't have animal models of that. We, we can't like cut up some other animal that we don't feel too guilty about. Not that I'm endorsing that, but like it's just not ethical. We don't have an ethical substrate to do the neuroscience. So we, in the end of the day, we just don't know enough neuroscience. About it, it is, it is possible that the human brain or future artificial intelligence is just a far more complex neural net that starts to understand like rules and preferences, those rules out after pattern match matching. And if that's the case, won't we feel sort of dumb for being so condescending to the step it's at now? You know, it's like, it's on the- No, 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 no. I, I don't see it that way at all. I, I would flip it around and say that the neural networks that we know how to build now are so vastly oversimplified compared to the ones that we want, right. that it's ridiculous that we're taking them seriously. So, you know, can I just give a couple examples? We know that there are about a thousand plus or minus kinds of neurons in the brain. Our neural networks basically have one kind of neuron. We know that at every synapse, there are like 500 different proteins. There's nothing even capturing that at all in our neural networks. We know that there's an enormous amount of intrinsic, innate organization to the brain. There's hardly any to our neural network. So yes, the ultimate answer for us anyway is a neural network, but the neural network for us is this incredibly complicated piece of machinery. The things that we have are so grossly simplified that like, why should we expect that the, you know, one has anything to do with the other? I think that one of the reasons that the media and the public is so susceptible to these particular story cycles and phenomenons and, and, and desires to, as Natasha says, see the ghost in the machine is not just because of some human impulse to anthropomorphize things. Because I do truly believe that we are very far away from the science fiction future that a lot of people expected at this point in time. I mean, we talked about the flying cars, self-driving cars, you know, self-aware neural networks or whatever. I mean, you maybe said it in your story about, you know, we're, we've hit a wall with deep learning, but, I, you know, a lot of the promises that we've expected uh, just haven't materialized in the way that we want. And so it's sort of easier yeah. for people to kind of assume great leaps have taken place already. We, we aren't even recognizing it. Uh, when in fact they're so far and we've kind of reached this kind of inching along, maybe impressive inches that, that you and others are, are, are involved with uh, of advancing AI and other technologies, self-driving as it is, but true promises of the kinds of things that we want, it just aren't there and won't be there for decades. 
And instead, we kind of just have story time where, where we anoint certain things as, you know, the, the next era when in fact, it's just not even close. I mean, does that sort of explain it, it to you, it, you think? It's even more complicated than that because I think the underlying problem that a lot of people have is they think AI is magic. They don't quite know what it is. And they think that whatever it is, it's sort of a universal elixir. And the reality is it's just a bag of engineering tools. And we probably need a bigger bag of tools and we'll probably use all the ones that we have now and we'll use some others and, you know, we'll eventually we'll model through all of this. But what's hard to grasp if you haven't studied the cognitive sciences is how many different components there are to doing good thinking. And it's a little hard to grasp that a system can be good at one thing and terrible at another. I mean, maybe if you, you know, metaphor might be like you can find someone who's really good at putting tile, you know, as a backsplash in a kitchen. And maybe that person's not so good at doing crossword puzzles, right? Like, you know, people can have different kinds of expertise. Well, the machines we have now have different kinds of expertise. We know how to build a machine that's really good at Go. We know how to make a machine that can be pretty good at pictures. We just don't know how to make a machine that really understands language. We only know how to make a machine that gives that illusion. And it, it, it's this kind of textured mixed bag and people, you know, want a one-liner. Are they smart or are they dumb? Well, it, it's neither. You know, they're smart at some things and incredibly dumb at others. And that's hard to but, accept. But most of the business world implicitly agrees with you, right? I mean, you know, generalized AI obviously fails at what you're saying. But most of most business applications, yeah, they're just trying to use huge data sets to solve very specific problems that they have. And they have no interest. In but you see of, the naivety of business. So, so I have seen some massive, massive companies make weird bets on AI. It would look to me like weird bets. So I said back in 2016 that driverless cars are much harder than, than you guys think they are. And since I said that, there's probably been $100 billion put, poured into it um, in terms of R&D costs and so forth. And so far, the, the only money that has come in from that is the elevation in the price of Tesla. Um, I mean, you could make some argument that level two self-driving has improved somewhat, I guess. But I mean, we're not close to level five self-driving. Like that's just, it's not really happening. We can talk about that if you want. I've thought about it a lot. On the media point, that is the media. I think the reporters, if you polled reporters throughout the whole period would have said that they don't think it's close. And yet the story, it, it's just interesting, like to me. The stories all made it sound like it was imminent. And maybe this makes it a worse failing on the part, part of reporters that, yeah, that somehow the stories come out positive, but most reporters themselves, I think over cocktails would be skeptical and i don't really understand i think it's just what it's public consumption desire they should hit like, me up i'll give them some quotes i mean <laughs> and i do i mean like sam sheet and cnbc came to me when optimus was announced and you know i i, I gave him the quotes um to give the other side and say look uh, you know there, there's something that's interesting about optimus but this is a really hard problem it's much harder than musk is acknowledging the, i think the public likes hey this company whose brand you believe in is willing to make bold promises about the future. And you get what you pay for. So it's like the fucking Theranos story. I mean, partially again. it's the humanity is so forgiving about false, about false optimism. People are extremely I forgiving. I think people should be it. asking more Theranos questions. I mean, I, right. I, I think, you know, Holmes, I'm not sure she meant well. And I think Musk means well, but <laughs> Musk, you know, issues, promises like they were candy. I actually called him on it recently. I don't know if you know this about me. Um, I bet him $100,000. He, he, he said to Jack Dorsey that he would be surprised if AGI wasn't here by 2029. So I've been writing this thing for Substack, GaryMarcus.substack.com. I was like, <laughs> okay, this is a good topic for, for um, an essay. I'll write about why AGI is actually going to be five years away. 
Uh, I mean, he's, he's going to be much more than or seven years away, rather. And I, I gave five reasons to think, like, this is really much harder problem than, than he's acknowledging and he's not very good at track record at a time. And then when I finished it, I was like, you know, I should put some money on this. That'll, you know. Um, so I put $100,000 on it. I laid out clear criteria. The field loved it. Um, and people in an hour had doubled my money and then raised it to half a million dollars. Wow. But um, so the bet still stands, but Elon hasn't responded. Because for him, he doesn't want to be called accountable <laughs> on this stuff. The media should be like, dude, you are chicken. There's one story like that out there. Somebody, one, you know, m- one small uh, outlet called him on it. But most people didn't pick it up. And they should. They should be like, this guy has been making us promises for six but he's years on driving his car. Now yeah, he's promising yeah. us a robot. And all we have seen right. is is a dude in a costume. Like, enough. Let's call him out on it. But the media has not done but that. But I mean, with with Tesla, I feel like the government is also very culpable. I mean, he's running these experiments on the streets. Oh, no. You guys don't get to blame the government on this. The media <laughs> is extremely skeptical of Tesla. Like, I don't know how much more skeptical of a company the media could be. They like, are, but not. they're not skeptical enough on the AI side. They, they really are. And and I can I can give you some pointers. I just don't off. know what it looks like. Like I, I go back to the announcement. Ba- you know, it's just sort of there's a certain deference to you know if a company announces something, if they want to risk their reputation on it, shouldn't the public hold them accountable if they don't deliver on the things there's not that they're that saying? Much accountability. Like, there aren't the even media? that many. What? I just don't yeah. see how the media is supposed to operate in such a disconnected way from human psychology. Like. We are telling you factually that they're making this assertion about what they will do in the future. The media, when it wants to, has plenty of room to kind of like set the narrative and set the questions. And there could be a lot more stories than there are that say basically, hey, I'll give you, you know, I'll write the story for you. So it should start with Elon promised this stuff in 2016. And then the next year, Facebook promised us M that never appeared. I don't know if you remember. It was going to be an all-purpose general assistant and that disappeared. And then Google Duplex was going to, you know, make phone calls for us. And, it, it, you know, the only thing they've added in four years is movie times. It's still incredibly narrow and limited. And now Elon's promising us a robot. And not only is he promising a, us a robot, but he's going to solve, or he thinks AGI is going to be solved in 2029. And here's this, you know, uh, NYU prof guy saying sure. it's all bullshit. And like, let's like, at least like ask the question. But it's one story. I mean, I... You couldn't have a reporter who's more aligned with you on this. And I feel like part of this podcast is shitting on reporters. For, but but what you're proposing is a single story that will then be up against sort of the infinite barrage of companies announcing things. It has to, I mean, it has to be more. It's just it like, how do you create more. the drumbeat of negativity? I mean, look, if we, if we learn nothing from the Trump administration, if we learn nothing from the Trump administration, it's that you have to keep up the pressure. And, you know, the, the news cycle is short and it's true. Like, if it's just one story, it's not enough. But there has to be a systematic effort. I mean, look, Kate Metz has been holding um, uh, Elon to the fire on the the effectiveness of the self-driving. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But I think, you know, it's it's like 95.5 or something like that. And I, and I also think, by the way, this extends to a lot of, and I'm very critical on this show about augmented reality and the promises these companies make on the effectiveness and the promises of what it can do. And we're about to enter this hype cycle again when Apple releases its you know, VR device and, and promises AR down the line. We're very quick to go to the demos. You know, All the reporters went down to Google and, and sat in the ugly Waymo cars, and, and that helped kind of pump along this idea that they were really close to self-driving. And I, I don't have an easy answer to it other than maybe occasionally telling these companies no. And, and saying, you know what, this demo that you're putting me through, yes, I can be critical in the article. And I think Natasha, I don't know the backstory of how this story came to her, but 
you know, the Washington Post also framed it with Blake, you know, kind of in dark artistic lighting, looking like some sort of visionary. When even though the article was, I think, reasonably critical of him, um, it still kind of posited him as a legitimate voice in this field, when obviously he's not. And and I, I just, I don't know. I, I, in what I write about, it doesn't come up nearly as much. Uber has spun off its self-driving uh, division. They don't care about it anymore. They're just a dollars and cents business and relatively boring because of it. But I think that the hype cycle as pushed by the companies will never end. And it's incredibly difficult as a reporter to turn down sexy stories that we know will get attention. I mean, you can run the stories, but you can get a whole lot more people like me, but not just me, mm-hmm. as voices in these things and, and make it clear that, and you, know, and you can remind them, you know, let's look at the history. We have seen this promise that wasn't delivered. Like, when's the last time that you read a story on these technologies that actually like reviewed the history and said all these other promises like um, didn't come true. Like they're, like you read a story about Optimus and it's probably mostly about Optimus and not saying so much about like, you know, Elon has missed every deadline he's ever proposed. Um, and it's not, you know, rarely are they synthetic, putting together all of the facts that I just gave about, hey, you know, Facebook made these promises, Google made these promises. It's actually really hard to get AI into production, which is itself, you know, an interesting question. Like there are some technologies you can put into production relatively quickly, but AI is not one of them. Why is it not? Well, it's not because there are always these outlier cases. So like, you know, you probably saw that one of the driverless cars ran into a jet the other day. Like it wasn't in the data center. Right. This is a persistent, well-known problem in the industry by now. Yeah, I've been writing about it since 2016. And like people are starting to recognize that it really is the whole ball game. But that means every time you have some technology, you're going to wind up with some outlier problem. So yeah, you're going to get the demo on day one and it's going to be five years, 10 years, 15 years before you can actually trust it. Like that should be in every story here. Yeah, and it's and I think it's also the duality of Silicon Valley and the CEO CTO dynamic, where it's both a marriage of some sort of technological progress and the American showmanship, song and dance marketing routine of getting the public excited about it. And we're as human beings and definitely as journalists susceptible to the CEO side of things. We love a character. I'll give you another story idea. Elon just—I mean, I actually wrote it, but in a Substack that didn't really get that much attention is Elon said, you know, the whole company, really, it depends on the self-driving cars. And, you know, if that doesn't work, we're basically worthless, which was slight exaggeration. But like, then it's just a car company. I mean, the reason it's get, you know, 101 price to earnings is because people think it is an AI company that's going to fundamentally change the world. That's why it's at 101. I don't know. I don't think most Tesla holders have a argument for why they hold the stock. But yes, I I see what you're (laughs) saying. Well, or it's because it kept going up, but now it's going down or whatever. But um, it, it's a big part of it, but I mean, Elon himself, it doesn't matter what it, the other holders are. The largest stockholder in Tesla, which happens to be Elon Musk, said, if we don't, or he said, we must sell uh, full self-driving or we're not worth anything. That in itself gives you a story like, OK, let's take for granted that what he said is true. We can ask around and, you know, get get some um, financial people, which I'm not to evaluate that statement. But if you take his premise, like. Okay, he's been promising this since 2015. Is he close? Let's look at the new accident data. Let's ask some experts. Like, let's hold his nose to the fire. I just think most Tesla's the one. I find most Tesla coverage is justifiably negative. I mean, you're basically asking reporters most to Musk have coverage is is negative. Like people, you know, make fun of his his tweets and and that kind of stuff. And you know, there was a new lawsuit yesterday, and people will write about that. I don't think that the AI coverage is nearly as skeptical as it could be. I mean, wasn't there a story about how they're like supposed to be turning off 
like the AI right before it gets in an accident or something. I need to, I don't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the NH, uh, NHTSA, we'll call it, just released something a couple of days ago. Right. Um, and uh, so that got a little bit of coverage, but I mean, come on. NHTSA has released two bombshells in the last NHTSA four days. NHTSA doesn't do anything. They've been deploying this for like, since like 2016 or something. And you're blaming... No, 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 like- no. NHTSA did two real things this week. NHTSA did two real things this week. They put out information about the turning off the autopilot just before um, the accident happens. And then they put a big dump in which Tesla had the most accidents, which is a complicated thing because they also have the most miles. But I mean, they put stuff out that could have been like top of the headlines, like, is this a serious problem for Tesla or not? And like, that was there for the journalists to run with. And I didn't see much about it. Like I checked the, you know, the news stories about Tesla every now and then just to see. You know, I almost think though Elon is such an outlier. He's such a character. He's so bizarre. He almost defies the laws of, of gravity when it comes to negative and positive coverage. It's almost not even worth honing it on him. Well, I mean, Trump was a little like that, right? And they play s- some similar games, but I guess people I, didn't I think give Google up on is, Trump. is a better example to me. Uh, or, or some of, I think Google uh, or, or some of the other big tech companies. I mean, they should be held to the fire yeah. more too. Same with OpenAI. Like they've gotten all of these love letters about GPT-3. So let's forget Google and, yeah. and just look at OpenAI for a minute. You know, you had the love letter in the Times by Stephen Berlin Johnson. The Guardian wrote an op-ed with it, et cetera. Everybody thinks they're like being creative by using it to write their story. Like this is like a, a trope by now. But yeah. it, it, I mean, it I keeps going, going I, out there. It, and, you know, Berlin Johnson gave two paragraphs to me and one to Emily Bender. But th- this story is still like so, so pro this kind of stuff in a way that I think many people in the field, you know, found It's what the public wants. I mean, ultimately, if you're a negative reporter, like I didn't write much about AI, I mean, uh, self-driving as an Uber reporter. I was very openly skeptical in the newsroom, refused to write about it. Uber would just go to a Business Week writer and say, hey, here's our new, like I didn't get a different Business Week reporter, you know, got the story for their Pittsburgh lab because Uber knows they can go to somebody else who will do sort of like, here's the big production. I mean, those guys are very good at shopping for I mean, it's just like, there's so much desire. There's so much desire for these stories, like editors. I mean, this is what business magazines are based on, like putting optimistic statements, you know, Mark Laurie is going to build a new city. I mean, it's just like, it's so part, it's what humanity wants at some point. I, I guess I just don't think reporters are going to will into being. It's like their business model. I, I mean, on I, think, I think that that's true. I think humanity wants happy stories about the new revolution. It's right. just that I think that comes at a cost. And that's how we got into the conversation. The cost is you, you wind up with people deluded and yeah, right. No, I agree. And I agree. So I'm being defensive, even though I I'm sympathetic. But it just seems hard to hard to. I, it's a lot I, of solve at the media level. Like, yeah, I mean, so look, I, I've been, you know, partly because you guys are media guys, and I I do some journalism. Right. Oh, we love it. Yeah, I'm happy to have the conversation. You know, I, I think it's fun right. to have this conversation. But I would agree with you that it's not like a you know two second problem. I I'm like pitching you ideas to go write about right. them and hoping some of your buddies will listen and 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 use them too. Like I'm giving them away for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the media re- reporters are all listening to this podcast. So yeah, I mean, I also understand like it is what the public wants, and so you know the public is partly to blame because it, it you know it it votes with its clicks, and and the stories that get read are are the you know, the world has changed kind of stories and not the, you know, I'm not so sure that this is really going to happen kind of stories. And the government is supposed to protect the roads. Like the the self-driving cars are on the streets. Like at the end of the day, I I am 
So the government is letting Tesla get away with this. Like Tesla has been experimenting for years. NHTSA is upping its game. NHTSA is upping its game. There, I think the media is not quite following the trail that NHTSA has been leading in the last few weeks. NHTSA is giving some really serious yeah. clues. The government's going to go after against Tesla after the stock is already down. It's so not they're just not Tesla, to, by the way. They're not to blame so, if they bring the company down. They don't want to do it when it actually would hurt a rising company. They want to do it after the market has already said, okay, fine, this company is like I overvalued. Mean, I think NHTSA just wants to have, like, do the right thing, whatever the right thing is. But they, they also showed that Waymo is having pretty serious problems too. And in fact, the whole field, like, so if you read those data carefully, the conclusion you should come to is we're not close to level five self-driving. Right. 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 And I remember personally, you know, my, my colleague Amir Afradi at the, uh, the information wrote what I thought was a fairly definitive story about Waymo's technology when they were testing on the streets in Arizona and basically found out that they couldn't turn left. Yeah, left turns are still hard. They're still yeah. hard. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, if that, you know, I, you know, that's gotta be, I think close to 50% of turns, you know, if, if they you can't know, even functionally do that. Levy gave every, Stephen Levy, I mentioned before, gave everybody a big clue in 2015 that not enough people picked up on, which is he, he visited Google at that point or Waymo, I forget what they were called, had this place where they were testing the machines and, and Levy, uh, yeah. what's the word I'm looking for, implanted there for a month or something, embedded there for embedded, a week. Yeah. I don't know. He embedded there for a week or something like that. And the like big dramatic point, I haven't gone back and reread this story, but I got him to give me the link the other day. So you can find it on back channel. I know that oh, within wire. So anyway, he's there for, for a week or something like that. And the big dramatic thing was at the end of his time there or something like that. Um, I haven't read it in seven years, but basically it revolved around, they figured out how to recognize a pile of leaves. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, hot dog, if, not if, hot dog. Right. You know, we, 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 yeah, hot dog, not hot dog. You know, they had already been doing this for five years at that point, And like leaves were still a problem. Well, that's, you know, leaves are an outlier. And that was a clue. Like every, if, if you have to bandaid up every outlier, then you're playing whack-a-mole. And that's still what's happening here. I keep coming back to the marriage of public research and, and academic research with the needs of a private company. And, you know, the, the, the press release announcement culture, that is what drives the, you know, stocks essentially in businesses of, you know, these tech companies with the, the sort of slow plotting methodical advances that happen in research that happen over decades. And it just doesn't fit with the timeline of these companies. That's right. I think the least your listeners could come away with is, hey, we are living in this announcement culture. And that announcement culture is making people like Blake Lemoyne believe in fairies that aren't there. And it's making a lot of us believe in deadlines that are not really going to be met. And that we should be a whole lot more skeptical. Yeah. And I also, just to reiterate Eric's point, I also think we as the media are coming up against human nature at times, which oh, is yeah. just, you know, it, it, in the representation of Blake Lemoyne, someone who is, you know, religiously. Te- and, Tesla is um, one of the most valuable companies in the world. Delusions are an inherent part of people's yeah. whole understanding of the universe. Like, I, yeah, I, I, I agree the media should be more skeptical, but I, I do think... Uh, regular humans, the government, uh, the companies making the announcements themselves. Uh, there, there are a lot of uh, people to blame. A couple here. seconds on government, if we yeah. have time. Sure. Yeah, we can close with that. I, I think government's going to have to regulate AI much more than it does. So right now, for example, any company, like T- Tesla, can put out an over-the-air update in its driving software, and there, there's only liability after the fact. There's, there's no you know, regulation, you must meet these test trials with these outliers before it's released. Um, and I think misinformation, which we haven't talked about today, is a massive, massive problem. In Europe, they just 
um, made a deal with Facebook and other companies to be tighter on that. We're going to need that here in North America too. And it's a serious problem because systems like GPT-3 and Lambda are fabulous at creating misinformation, which makes them wonderful tools for trolls and other other you know, troll farms and so forth. And that is a serious problem. It's going to make misinformation much worse than it is now. And so, yeah, I've been dumping on the media because I thought it'd be fun. And, you know, we all share an interest in it. But I'd be totally right that the government needs to to step it up and needs to figure out how to regulate this stuff, which nobody really knows yet. Um, it needs to realize how important it is. So I did this Twitter space with, with Natasha and Kara Switcher and Casey um, last night. And the best question from the audience was like, okay, so if you're saying people are going to fall in love with these things and they're toxic, what is public health going to do about that? And that is a really good question. Yeah. Which we don't know the answer to. Great. We can leave it there. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Gary. And for our listeners who are maybe may, many of them reporters, if they want to get in contact with you and, <laughs> and read more, Gary or Marcus. read your list, we'll, it will include your list of 20 people who share your views about AI so that we can, you know. You can get that in uh, the piece called Paradigm Shift at GaryMarcus.substack.com. Great. Awesome. And at Gary Marcus on Twitter. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Gary. This was awesome. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye, 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 goodbye.